Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? My monthly Q&A appearance on ADHD Rewired with the one and only Eric Tivers is coming up on Tuesday, February 12th. Go to ADHDrewired.com events for more details. And don't forget about the ADHD Essentials Facebook community, where you'll find support for parenting your child with ADHD and managing your own symptoms. Go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials community to sign up. Those links are in the show notes. And finally, I'd really appreciate a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Seriously, I'm begging you. Please, oh, please, oh, please. They help others find the show. And it's a great way to help us grow. Just remember to use a unique username or iTunes may not accept the post. This is episode 57. Today, we're talking to Ari Tuckman. Dr. Tuckman is a psychologist in private practice specializing in diagnosing and treating children, teens, and adults with ADHD, anxiety, and depression. He's appeared on CNN, National Public Radio, The New York Times, USA Today, The Washington Post, and The Boston Globe. And now, he's on the pod. In today's episode, we talk about relationship skills. The episode focuses on marital and parent-child relationships, but the concepts we discuss apply to all of them. And we dig deep, discussing the roles of effort, shame, problem-solving, communication, and even asymmetrical information in our relationships. I really enjoyed doing this episode, and I think you'll enjoy listening just as much. All right, let's get rolling. So I am a psychologist in private practice. I've specialized in ADHD for about 20 years now, a little bit more maybe. I've written three books on adult ADHD, and I have a new book coming out this fall of 2019 called ADHD After Dark, based on some research I've done looking at how ADHD impacts a couple's sexual and relationship satisfaction. So yeah, it's pretty interesting stuff. I really enjoy talking to couples about their relationship and how ADHD impacts that and how it really creates a situation for both partners to, I don't know, bring more of the better parts of themselves, shall we say, to Mm -hmm. the relationship, just as anyone in any relationship has to work on bringing the better parts of themselves. Assuming that the folks listening to this episode are going to be like, wait, he's got books and one is ADHD after dark coming out. What do I do with this stuff? Mm -hmm. Where can they find you? So best place to get information about my books and my podcast, which admittedly I haven't done in a long time, maybe some upcoming presentations, is adultadhdbook.com. And ironically, now that I have a book coming out on ADHD and sex, adultadhdbook.com has like a whole new meaning. That's hilarious. That's I awesome. know. Isn't that great? <laughs> um, I guess the most obvious place to start is how do we bring our best selves to the relationship? Right. So... The biggest, most obvious thing that I think came out of this kind of massive survey that I did is that 
the one, there are many, many differences between the happiest and least happy couples, but one of them was that those couples who were the happiest felt that their partner put in good effort on managing either their own or their partner's ADHD. So I interviewed couples, or in the survey, there are folks who themselves had ADHD, and then there are folks whose partner had ADHD. The thing is, everybody rated their own effort at managing ADHD to be pretty high, because of course, we're all awesome, right? And it's our partners that suck. Self-ratings, everyone rates themselves well. That's just standard issue. But the folks who felt that their partner put in good effort were among the happiest couples out there, that there was a very strong correlation between partner effort and self-effort. And, you know, you hardly need to be a psychologist to figure out why that would be. You know, if you feel like your partner is putting in good effort in this particular way, they're probably also putting in good effort in other ways. And if you feel like your partner is putting in good effort, you are hopefully more inclined to also put in good effort. And relationships are always a two-to-tango kind of a situation. And ADHD is just one of many, many, many things that couples need to sort of wrangle out. But, um, you know, good effort, good intentionality, making it a priority, making the relationship a priority, making your partner's feelings and desires a priority, all of that bodes well for both partners being happy in the relationship. I imagine a lot of that comes down to communication. Yeah. As a person with ADHD, married to a wife who has just the sexiest executive functions in the Mm -hmm. whole world, she doesn't really know necessarily how much effort I'm putting in around my ADHD because so much of it is going on underneath the surface. So I kind of have to tell her. And I I know we've had some conversations where I've gotten pretty vulnerable and been like, yeah, I'm dying. And this is all the stuff that's been really hard for me. And this is the shame that's roiling on through my head. And she looks at me with this like, wait, what? Like, huh? Because it's not obvious. Yeah. No. And I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, this is one of the things I talk about in the book is that it's important to have those, those conversations because, you know, we all have this tendency to look at the world through our own lens. So if something is easy for me, but hard for you, if you do it, I don't give you a lot of credit because I'm like, well, that's easy. Of course, everybody does that, right? I mean, that, what's the big deal there? So it would be very easy for your wife to look at certain things that you do and not really think much of it or not give a whole lot of credit. But if you're busting your ass to make it happen and you don't get full credit, it's not just for your sake that that that's a lost opportunity, but it's for hers as well to feel, I don't know, to feel like you care enough about this that you are willing to put in that effort. And I think that you know, intention counts a lot in relationships as much as outcome does. The other sort of thought that that brought into my head was there have been times when I've given my wife a ton of credit for her effort or intentionality or however you want to look at it just for dealing with all of the challenges that I bring to the table. Mm -hmm. That feels like a double-edged sword to me because on the one hand, you're walking a tightrope over shame if that's the perspective. But on the other hand, it's valid. It is. So, so here, here's the way out of that dilemma. On the one hand, it is valid. So like awesome executive functions is not one of the party tricks you, you bring to the relationship, <laughs> right? But that's okay. As long as you feel, and also your wife feels, that you do bring other great strengths, talents, interests, whatever. 
it's only when it feels like it's an imbalanced relationship that it becomes problematic because then the person who feels like they're giving less falls into shame and the person who feels like their partner is giving less falls into resentment is like i'm giving more than i'm getting here basically hmm. so it's very very easy to look at the adhd as the big obvious thing that isn't working out here and i'm not going to say that it it isn't there or that it isn't genuinely having an effect and i'm certainly all in favor of working hard on your adhd and all of that but nobody is so simple as only being ADHD, and no relationship is so simple as they're only as the only trouble in the relationship is the ADHD. Because by the way, lots of couples where nobody has ADHD, they also have struggles. You know, so to make ADHD the obvious scapegoat, I think it really is a disservice to both people because there are other strengths that you bring, and let's be honest, there are other challenges, however awesome your wife is, that she brings. You know, in that the two of you, like every other couple, have to find a way to work well together to compensate for each other's weaknesses and to appreciate each other's strengths and the efforts that you each put in. Yeah, absolutely. I know for a little while there, I was sort of navigating going back to grad school and becoming reemployed and those sorts of things, which of course then led to me just doing this ADHD stuff full time. Mm hmm. But during that sort of roller coaster time frame of my life, one of the things that I was able to hang my hat on was my skills with my kids, right? Because yeah. my executive functions might not be that great, but my social emotional skills are top notch. And that was useful to have with children and also with bringing sort of a circle of friends into our lives that we needed and those kinds of things. Right. And having that awareness of my strengths was really useful for me and, and pretty powerful. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think Bob Brooks talks about islands of competence, as he calls them, in that, you know, I think it's very easy for folks with ADHD or their partners or their parents or whoever to get over-focused on the weaknesses and to sort of over-generalize that and to sort of lose sight of or to minimize the strengths that the person has. And, you know, my guess is for all your wife's strengths, that social emotional piece with your kids, like, she brings a different kind of that or yeah. whatever, you know? So like, you know, or the more social aspect in terms of friends and neighbors is not as much of a strength as it is of yours. So um, I think the relationships that really are struggling are the ones that either become or perhaps more likely are, are felt to be really imbalanced. I'm doing so much here and you're not doing enough you know, or vice versa. I feel like crap that I'm not doing enough. And boy, my partner is such a saint to put up with me. And the unfortunate irony is if that mindset takes hold in one or certainly both partners, it can become a bit self-fulfilling, you know, and the way that that often looks is the non-ADHD partner gets anxious earlier about things and feels like, oh, that has to be taken care of, or that's not being done in the right way. So I have to do it. And then they take on this and then they take on that and then they take on the other. And the partner with ADHD, perhaps undiagnosed, untreated, kind of lets them get away with it. Because in some ways, like, sure, I'm more than happy for you to take out the trash. But it just becomes more and more and more. And it becomes this narrative of if things are going to get done, it's got to be you who does it. And it 
indeed becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. But that's not how the relationship started. But more importantly, it's not how the relationship actually needs to be. You know, so part of, I think, working with couples, you know, any of us as individuals in relationships is figuring out, is this how it needs to be? Do we have better options? You know, there's something to be said for expectations. How are things to be done? If I have a particular idea of how it needs to be done, but you would do it differently, is that a problem? So like when my wife reloads the dishwasher, you know, like, does it need to be reloaded? I don't know. I would say no. Obviously, she would say yes. You know, so like, these are the things that we need to kind of sort out. And I don't know, in the case of me and my wife in the dishwasher, I don't know if the answer is she's just going to be the one to load it or repack it. Or she says, screw it, whatever. I don't care enough about the dishwasher. I'm going to let him do it. I don't know. That's a trivial example, but there's a million of these that any couple has to wrangle with. Yeah. And I think the dishwasher is a good one, right? That's honestly, that's where my head went too, as you were talking. (laughs) For some reason in my head, you do the dishes at night. It's like a end of the day kind of Mm -hmm. activity. I don't know why that's how it is in my head. And I didn't realize it was until literally two minutes ago. But that's not necessarily the best time to do the dishes, depending on how many dishes are in the sink and what's going on. Because sometimes you can't cook dinner or make lunch or whatever if the dishes aren't clean or out of the way or in the dishwasher or something. So I can see a scenario where, and just using my wife and I as a token example here, where I'm not doing the dishes. I'm not getting anxious about that until later on at night. But my wife is getting anxious about that sooner because she's like, if I want to do dinner, I need this, this, Mm -hmm. and this is dirty in the sink or whatever. And I can also see her get anxious about it because, and this is a little self-reflection happening right now in the moment, um, (laughs) is my gut feeling that dishes should, are like an end of the day activity. Mm -hmm. I'm also cooked at the end of the day. So there's probably a 50% chance that I don't deal with them and decide I'll do it tomorrow, which means I'm upping my wife's anxiety around dishes if I'm putting it off. And, and also, I, if she's loading the dishwasher and I'm just not noticing that, then she's feeling like she's taking on more of a load than I am because I'm not picking up on it because it happens when I'm at Cub Scouts with the boys or it happens mm-hmm. when I'm just not tuned in. So this is part of why everyone rates their own effort higher than they rate somebody else's is because we, we're completely aware of everything that we do. The things that get done out of our sight, we don't necessarily notice. So like... If you see your wife loading the dishwasher, you may mentally add that to your tally. But you may not necessarily notice, oh, there's a bunch of plates on the island before Cub Scouts, and now there are no plates on the island after Cub Scouts. You know, so like that doesn't get added in. So it's sort of this thing of like, if you you and your spouse both write down on a piece of paper, what percentage of dishwasher loading do you think you do? My guess would be it it would come out to more than 100%, which is mathematically not actually possible, (laughs) right? Because you don't notice what the other person is is doing out of your sight. You know, but I think that this simple example of the dishwasher is, is a good one because it presents a number of options of how to deal with it. On the one hand, your wife, let's say the scenario is she's making dinner and the dishes are in her way. She's got a few options. Now, a less healthy option is to resentfully and angrily load the dishwasher and take this tack of like, I'm the victim, I can never count on you, God damn it, once again, I'm having to do everything, 
and you know the night is ruined and whatever whatever so like that's certainly one option another option is to ask you say like hey you know what it'd be really great if you could load the dishwasher i know you got this thing about doing it at night but you know if you could just take care of this now that'd be awesome i appreciate it or she could take the tack of just pushing the dishes aside and letting you do it later and doing what she needs to do for dinner or she could just say you know what screw it like i'm just gonna look like whatever i'm just gonna do this like i'm gonna take care of my own happiness i'm gonna be frustrated if you're sitting here i'm gonna make myself happier by just taking two minutes tucking it in the dishwasher and being done with it you know like she has a lot of options there of how to handle it and obviously some of them are better than others and you know if it's a thing where she's brought this up and she's brought it up and she's brought it up can you do me a favor don't leave the dishes you know like get this stuff from the day in and out of the way before i make dinner like i would really appreciate that and you say awesome sounds good and then you keep forgetting it then that needs to become the topic of conversation like look i don't know what we're doing here you know i've brought this up you seem to agree and yet it's not working out what's our plan b how do we address this <laughs> and you say that in the most like straightforward non-emotional right <laughs> way i don't imagine that's how that conversation actually goes often not and <laughs> you know and part of the reason is so there's a couple of reasons one is that sometimes the person waits too long where they're just fed up and then it, it will come out with anger um or it feels like example a million of you know times where this isn't working out so um so you know again it, it it becomes that choice point you know does she say you know what i know i keep asking him but like screw it it's not working out i'm just gonna like i'm just letting this go or does it become a thing of i need to take a harder stand on this for the sake of my own resentment like i can't just let this go right and like that's the judgment call for her and to me, right, putting my coach hat on for this imaginary family, mm -hmm. that is when you need to change your questions. Right. Very often when I've asked you to do the dishes a million and a half times, you're just not doing them. You've said you will, but you're not. Now I'm taking it personally. Now I'm resenting it. That's often where that goes. But if we take a step back and say, I've asked him to do the dishes a million times. He's not doing it. He needs a different strategy. We as a couple need to come up with a new plan mm -hmm. to help him remember to do the dishes. Maybe that's an Alexa reminder. Maybe that's a timer on his phone that goes off at 5.30 every day. I don't know. Yeah. But having a different way to do it becomes important. That's where I would advise saying, you're not doing the dishes like we've talked about. How can yeah. we help you make that happen? What strategy? And it may be a, the strategy that gets used is the wife in this scenario, who's awesome at noticing the dishes, perhaps because she's going to suffer the consequences of them being in her way, you know, like she's just more involved in that, that she gives a friendly reminder. And, you know, the deal is she gives a reminder nicely and he takes the reminder nicely. And taking it nicely doesn't mean getting defensive or falling into shame of, I can't believe I forgot again. But it also doesn't mean, okay, just a minute okay, just a minute, okay, just a minute, by which I mean never. Um, right. You know, so, so there are various ways to address it. But, you know, there's also the possibility here of both of them recognizing that, you know what, this dishes thing, it, it ain't working. Or what it will take for this to work isn't worth it. Like, so she just takes over the dishes. But 
key thing, then he does some other thing instead. You know, so you find some different way of sort of rebalancing the scale. So it can't be a thing where one partner takes on more and more and more because that's definitely a setup for eventual resentment. The example that comes to my mind, this is like an old one, this is like three, two houses ago, but you know, long ago when my wife and I were first married, we would put our trash cans out on the curb and then the, the guys would come, they'd empty the trash cans and then they'd chuck them on the front lawn somewhere. And my wife was always coming, she always got home earlier than I did just through the nature of things. And she would come home, wouldn't see the trash cans or would whatever. But, but in any event, often there are trash cans thrown on the lawn and I'm coming home late and I'm resentful about other things in our relationship. And this fell into this sort of bigger thing of like the balance between us and whatever, whatever. So I would see the trash cans on the lawn and then I'd just be pissed off that like, God damn it, here we go again. We keep talking about this. I need to take yet, you know, I just worked 12 hours and now I got to go and do the trash cans, which by the way, let's be really generous and say that's a 27 second job. Um, <laughs> right. But still, right. So again, like it was part of a bigger thing. It wasn't really about the trash cans and you know, I'd be pissed off. She would probably get defensive or maybe say I'll do it better next week or something. But it just came to a point where clearly nobody betting money was going to bet on her remembering. Like, you know, data suggests this ain't going to happen. It just got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do the trash cans. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm not going to be a jerk about it when I walk in the door. Because that's the other problem is me coming in all fired up basically makes the topic of conversation. Why am I such an ass? Not, <laughs> honey, I feel disappointed that yet again, you didn't do the trash cans, right? So delivery is really important on these things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so we just sort of, changed our expectations on that one and we were both a lot happier now granted you know our relationship was not so simple that it was only about trash cans on the lawn once a week but at least that one we sort of put to bed and instead focused on other things that maybe there was a bit more flexibility on my wife and i have had a similar element where for us it's uh the bushes right trimming the bushes my, when we moved into the house my wife was like how about this you mow the lawn and i'll do the bushes and i was like okay cool Mm. And so this past, I don't know, spring, summer, I just came over to her and was like, you're not trimming the bushes. And, and <laughs> I'm not trimming the bushes because we had a conversation 10 years ago and you said that was going to be your job, which is the stupidest reason in the whole world for me to not be trimming the bushes when you're also not trimming the bushes. And I just got clotheslined by a vine while I was mowing the lawn. Like right. I had like a red gash across my throat and everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't care about doing the bushes. Do you want me to just take it over? And then, and this happens on, for both of us, that triggers the anxiety of feeling like I'm not doing the thing I'm supposed to do. And so she tried to keep the bushes. She doesn't want to do the bushes. She's not thinking of doing the bushes. Right. I'm just going to take over the bushes. But it gets that, like, I'm not fulfilling my responsibility or my end of the bargain in some way. Because that's another component in here too, right? For, for potentially both members of the relationship. I know literally last night, my wife was started taking dishes out of the dishwasher. I realized I should have done that. But I was also watching a show with my kids, which was part of me de-escalating some homework drama. So I couldn't just bail on the show with the kids. I had to let yeah. that de-escalate. And I said to her, I'll do that in a minute. And her response was, if you want to eat dinner, I'm going to be doing this right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So that's just the way it was. 
But often when I see her doing something that I feel like I should have done or is theoretically my job, that gets my anxiety going. What do we do with that part? So I think, first of all, you're absolutely right. I think that it's, it's an insightful comment that it would be very easy to see her unloading the dishwasher to then realize, uh-oh, I messed up, to then feel guilty towards her, to feel sort of ashamed about yourself, and to then quickly turn that into anger. Ah, I'll do, do, why are you doing that? I'll do it. I'm taking care of the kids. God, you expect so much from me. And she's like, whoa, yeah. you know, like you started this conversation like nine steps down the road. What happened? You know, because the first eight of them happened inside your head. Mm -hmm. So it's really easy to go there when we get defensive. Or if you brought up the thing with the bushes, it'd be really easy for her to say, yeah, but I, I do so much else around here. How, I don't know, who cares about the bushes or, you know, or whatever. And for you to then get rigidly stuck in this thing of, yeah, but 10 years ago, you said, and then like we're both off to the races at that point. You know, often when it comes to dealing with something with someone else, it begins by sort of being aware of and perhaps modulating our own internal reaction before we even open our mouth. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's certainly easier said than done. And part of ADHD is having a harder time on, on that, just as, you know, it's harder time kind of modulating what you're paying attention to or holding back, you know, putting your attention onto a distraction. It's the same thing of having trouble sort of feeling the emotion and then it gets expressed without pausing to think about it. To the extent that generally there's less tension between the two of you, it'll be easier to sort of calm that internal reaction of like, oh, messed up again. And to say it more nicely, hey, right. you know what, I'll take care of that. And then for your wife to say nicely, like, you know what, don't worry about it, let me just do it. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be a problem. Or if it is a problem for her to just say, you know what, I, you know, I understand, you know, this situation with the kids or whatever she says, but like, I would really appreciate, could you just, could you just take care of this? I, I got to get on to dinner. Like, could you just take a minute and take care of this? But, you know, we can't expect our partner to behave better than we do. So if you come at her with fire or she comes at you with fire, it's generally unreasonable to expect the other person to respond well to a bad reaction. Right. That makes sense. So we want to do what we can to mitigate that stress response, that anxiety, the shame, whatever's hiding inside of it. Yeah. I know for me personally, it helps to name whatever I'm feeling. Yeah. If I can think, oh, I'm feeling anxious or oh, I'm feeling frustrated or oh, I feel bad that I didn't unload the dishwasher before any words come out of my mouth. Right. That typically brings me down a few notches, but it's not always easy. It's not. I mean, it's super hard that skill, that psychological and relationship skill of emotional self-regulation, the tough one, but it's so crucial. It's central to having good relationships with people because if you can't manage your own emotions, it creates a situation where then basically other people need to manage them for you, which they often don't, and then it becomes a blow up. So if you don't manage your own sort of discomfort at the moment, and then let's say you get angry and defensive, it then becomes your wife's job to say, whoa, honey, calm down. What, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just about, and now, now it's like her job to manage your emotional reaction to the dishwasher job you didn't do. So now she has two jobs. 
She has to unload the dishwasher and she needs to talk you off the ledge of being all fired up about the fact that you didn't do the dishwasher. So that just, I mean, okay, fine. We all got our moments and we need to be good to each other. But if this is like a common scenario in the relationship, that's going to breed resentment and withdrawing as well. And then hiding inside all of that is a really challenging conversation that we need to have about this dynamic. And how do I have that conversation if my partner flies off the handle and gets defensive? You know, so if that's the scenario, then, then actually that becomes the conversation. You know, honey, we have these things that come up between us and I feel like I'm caught in this bind here. Like, I feel like we need to be able to talk about these things because we keep running into the same ditches. And yet, if I bring it up, you get like angry and defensive and the conversation blows up. We can't even talk about it. So like, I don't know what to do. I can't ignore it because we keep winding up in a ditch, but I can't bring it up because then you lose it. So what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. I kind of call it giving the other person your dilemma, Mm -hmm. you know, so I can't bring it up, but I can't not bring it up. You know, then the conversation becomes like, so how do, how do we do this conversation in a way that it's easier for you to keep your head on? It's easier for both of us to stay in the conversation. And maybe there's something about how the conversation gets started. Maybe there's something about when it occurs. So like in the heat of the moment, it's probably not the best time. Right before bed, almost certainly not the best time. Do we need to actually carve out some time in an intentional way? This is the time that we're going to have this better conversation. Are there just too many unresolved issues that are going on? So nothing gets handled in isolation. So we need to really be serious about kind of chipping away at some of that unresolved stuff. You know, it's sort of, it's, it's that kind of stuff then that needs to happen in the conversation. One of the pieces of advice I give to my clients around this problem, and I'd love to get your take on it, is that a piece of it is asymmetrical information, right? Mm-hmm. The person bringing up the conversation typically has a lot more information, has done a lot more thinking about that conversation and that topic than the person who's receiving the information. And the person receiving the information is defensive because it's often criticizing them. They're playing some role in it, but they don't necessarily even know the role. One of the things I've advised after sort of framing it around that is both people need to be on the same page with this and need to know that this is the plan. You can't just spring it on somebody. But if we know that there's an important conversation that needs to be had, sending an email, either bullet pointing the thoughts or the scenario or whatever then gives the other person time to process all of that and get past that defensiveness mm-hmm. so that they can, everyone can come to the page with, come to the table with the same amount of information roughly yeah, and have a, hopefully a more effective conversation. I think that's great. My wife and I do that where if there's, you know, some big issue that's been brewing, one or the other of us will sort of write out a response, you know, something. And, mm-hmm. you know, what's, And then we'll sort of hand it and the other person gets to read it and then maybe they think about it and then we have a better conversation. The reason why this is a good idea is, first of all, when you write it out, you can really craft your language and say it in a really good way. Much better than what you can say spontaneously just by speaking it. There's Mm -hmm. also fewer interruptions so you can really get all your points out. But there's also something about reading the written word that's less emotionally provocative than having somebody tell you. So I think there's a lot of good reasons for it. It also really forces you, the writer, to clarify in your mind what exactly is going on here. 
you know, what are my gripes and grievances? What's my part? What's your part? Has this all fit together? So absolutely taking some time to write something up and it can't be like a, you know, a manifesto, but a page or two, you know, might be a great conversation starter and a way to move the conversation down the road before either of you actually opens your mouth. But I think the other thing that's really helpful is to sort of, to lead with your part. So for example, like if this scenario is that you and I get into these big blowouts, you know, it might be helpful to say, you know what, I recognize the fact that I often wait too long to say something. And then I'm like totally at my wit's end and I come at you like way too hard in a way that's not helpful. But then when you respond in this angry, defensive, avoidant way, it just sort of sets me off even more, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not you, 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 and it's not simple, like simplistic I statements, I, 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 but it's, it's this sort of interaction. Because of course, in a relationship, nothing happens in a vacuum. You know, everything that happens in this moment is influenced by everything, by the million moments that came before it. So, you know, there is an interaction effect. I do this and you do that and you do that and I respond in this way and around and around we go. So, so to talk about that process by which you each sort of evoke better or worse behavior from each other, I think is really important and really helpful and helps get you out of those, we keep going around and around on the same topic and not getting anywhere and to hopefully use a better process by which you can then discuss that topic and probably some other topics as well. Because this is really all problem solving. It is. That's really what we're talking about. It's really emotionally charged problem solving, and that's mm -hmm. part of the problem, but it's really just problem solving. It is, and I think it's that, so what happens is when we get too emotionally fired up, then the process goes off the rails, mm -hmm. and then we can't solve it like, you know, we lose some of our sort of intellectual abilities, so to speak. You know, we wind up in a ditch or we get stuck in ways that never worked, but we keep doing them or whatever. We're not able to, to understand where the other person is coming from, let alone maybe to understand where we ourselves come from to approach it in a more effective way. So like, just to use a cliche example here and to go back to the dishwasher. So let's say your wife feels like, here we go again, I have to be the responsible one, I'm always a responsible one, which by the way is a thing that existed in her head before you ever showed up on the scene, so like this is her piece of it, <laughs> right? And you forgetting the dishwasher ain't helping, right? Right. Um, and then for your part, you're sitting there thinking, great, screwed up again, as always I'm disappointing people, I can't even count on myself if I say I'm gonna do something. So this is all like deep psychology stuff back because in the that back of your mind. Because that your head before she came along. Right, right, that, she didn't create that little chestnut in your mind. So, but you each sort of evoke it, and now this simple two minute job of loading the dishwasher is all this other emotional loading that gets brought into it. And that's why it becomes such a mess, is you're not really talking just about the dishwasher, you're talking about this other stuff, some of which has to do with the relationship, you know, because you're not, neither of you is psychotic. So some of it genuinely has to do with the relationship, but some of it has nothing to do with the relationship and has to do with each of your individual psychologies. But like, that's what makes relationships difficult. But that's also the opportunity for us to sort of learn from those experiences or a line I use a lot is a good relationship is one that pushes you to become a better person. So like, 
if your wife can approach you in a way, in a bit of a nicer way, then if you get into all that crap about, oh, I messed up again, that's an opportunity for her to challenge you a bit and say like, you know what, it's just a dishwasher. Like seriously, you need to keep your head on. I don't know why you get so defensive. Like it really is not a big deal. This is like the condensed version. And then for you to realize like, you know what? She's right. Like I bring a lot to this relationship. I'm a good husband. I'm a good father. I'm a good person. Dishwashers, whatever. Like I need to be responsible and diligent, but like seriously, not a big deal. So like you work on your part. And maybe for her, like if she snaps at you and then you respond in a better way and you're like, it's dirty dishes. Like what's the deal? And then she realizes, you know what? I need to not wait so long to advocate for myself. I need to stand up and push for what's important. I need to maybe be flexible, let some things go. They're really not, like in the grand scheme of things, this is not a big deal. You each have your part to play and you both become not just better partners, but better people overall because there's nothing like an intimate relationship to push us to work on our issues because intimate relationships will bring out those issues way more than an acquaintance relationship will. Certainly my relationship with my wife has made me a better person. Yeah. That's part of what I am attracted to her. Part of why. Part of why I'm attracted to her yeah. is that I know she makes me want to be better at whatever the thing is that I need to be better at. Um, yeah. So, yay, I'm doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the reason why she can do that, and of course then vice versa, but the reason why she can do that is that she has enough awareness and insight to not get lost in her own crap so that she can point out yours. Right. You know? Yeah. So if she gets into this spin of, you know, I can't ask for things, I need to be the responsible one, blah, 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 and gets lost in that old mess, then she can't sort of stand her ground and point out and say like, look, asking you to unload the dishwasher, that's a pretty reasonable expectation. I need you to actually be able to take those kind of requests and not fall to pieces over it. Right. Yeah. A piece of our dynamic is that she's able to say to me, no, your, your crap is actually a little more significant than you think it is. And mm -hmm. I'm able to say to her, no, your crap is actually less significant than you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> and not, yeah. in a, not in a derogatory meaning, right. but like, like my wife gets chronic migraines and she'll get hit with one every now and then. And it's just on top of having a migraine, it's always the really bad ones when this happens. On top of the migraine, she's now also feeling bad about the fact that she can't do anything, like right. talk to the kids, do dishes, dinner, whatever it is. She can't do those things because she's in bed with a migraine. Yeah. And my job is to be like, yeah, you, like you have a disability and that's okay. Yeah. I got it. <laughs> you yeah. don't need to worry about this. You don't need to feel bad about it. I will make you a permission slip if you want. Like it's right. totally not a big deal. So, yeah, but I want to, um, I want to flip things a little bit because we've been talking about all of this in the context of sort of the marital relationship and also in a very heteronormative marital relationship. So I want to point out that all of this mm -hmm. applies to homosexual relationships too. Totally valid. We just happen to be two straight guys talking about it. But a lot of this also factors into parent child relationships too. I would imagine. Yeah. One of the pitfalls that I'm seeing and, and tell me if I'm wrong is that balance of responsibility. It's really easy when you have two adults to feel like feel that out and kind of know where you want it to be. But when you have kids, the balance of, of responsibility changes as they mature. 
And often there's this gap right around middle school where they could be taking on more responsibility, but we don't really ask them to. And then all of a sudden we're like, you're 14 and you should be doing all this stuff or you're right. 10 and you should be doing all this stuff or whatever the case may be in your family. Any ideas on how to navigate that? Yeah, I think that this stuff absolutely applies. I mean, it applies to every relationship, intimate relationships between adults, but also parent-child stuff. And, you know, our kids will, will also push us to hopefully become better people. Ultimately, all of parenting boils down to figuring out that sort of dynamic shifting balance of how much do I do for my kid and how much do I let them figure it out on their own. Now, obviously, when they're two, it's different than when they're five and when they're 10 and 30, but it's still that same dynamic. And of course, if one kid, if a kid has ADHD, then it's very easy for the parent to struggle a bit more with that because, you know, a 10-year-old with ADHD, when it comes to just daily life stuff, may not be functioning at the level of other 10-year-olds. So it's easy for the parent to go to either extreme. One is you know, helicoptering and doing too much. The other is to not do as much and be resentful and frustrated. Why aren't you doing this? You're 10 years old. I shouldn't have to remind you, whatever, whatever. Or alternatively, if a parent does find that right space in the middle, to get pressure from family and friends who are like, why are you reminding her so much? She's 10. She should be able to do it. And the response, of course, is, yeah, but she doesn't. So <laughs> therefore, I am doing it. I appreciate it. The causality in this case goes, she doesn't do it, therefore I need to provide additional parenting, not because I helicopter, therefore she doesn't do it. So people will assume it goes the other way, that you're kind of spoiling your kid or whatever. But to be able to have those kind of honest conversations, and obviously it's different at 10 than it is at 15 or 20, but it's still those same conversations about like, you know, here's what I need from you. Here's what I expect from you. How do we work together on this? And our kids will make us crazy more than anyone, probably. So how do we keep our heads on to be the adult in the room while also not sort of over-adulting where we then don't hold our kids responsible enough for their part of it? You know, so like that's, that's the tricky balance. But I don't know, somehow we mostly figure it out because the species seems to survive. Alexa has given me a new view on this, or it's really helped me explain a view I already had in a better way. So if my kid needs to remember to do their homework and they set a reminder in Alexa for five o'clock to remind them to do their homework, I'm like, my kid is mature and responsible and totally use that Alexa appropriately. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if my kid says to me, hey, dad, can you remind me to do my homework at five o'clock? I'm like, why do I have to be your memory? How come you can't just remember to do your homework on your own? And that doesn't make any sense because <laughs> mm -hmm. it's the same thing. The kid's doing the same thing. What's happening on my end is I'm being asked to use bandwidth that I don't have and I'm getting defensive about that and deciding it means my kid's not being responsible. Or I'm thinking that they're sort of making me parent too much. But really, they're just looking for a resource mm -hmm. that can help them solve this problem that they know that they have. Alexa sort of put a new lens on that dynamic for me where I've taken to the point of if your kid asks you to remind them to do something, they're in control of that reminder because they made the request. Mm -hmm. So you're not helicopter parenting. You're just hooking them up. Yeah. But if you're always reminding them without them prompting you to do so, without them admitting they need help, then we have a problem. 
one of the reasons why you have a problem at that point is it potentially becomes a chase dynamic where it's more important to you that they get their homework done and that's not, not important enough to them. And that's a losing battle. You know, that's like pushing a rope. It doesn't work that well. So, <laughs> you know, so at least if your kid says, hey, can you give me a reminder? It may be that some really good self-awareness, like I recognize I will not notice five o'clock coming and I'm likely to miss it. And then we're all going to be unhappy. So here now at 3.15, I'm going to take a step to better remember it. Now, remembering it, it that, you know, being notified that it's now five doesn't automatically mean I'm going to do my homework. But, you know, not knowing it's five definitely means that I won't. Now, it may be that for you then on the receiving end of that, you may sort of think about it and say like, you know what, I am not the best guy for this job, or I'm going to be doing something else, or I can't guarantee it. Or I just don't feel like it. Like I have enough other things. I'm not interested in this job also. Mm -hmm. So in that case, let's go to plan B. What else can we do, by which mostly I mean you, to be reminded at five? So I think that that's important as well in the sense of like, you know, kind of modeling self-advocacy, modeling flexible problem solving. You know, but, but that's a different conversation than chasing your kid to do what they don't want to do. And it could also be that your kid doesn't have any other strategies, right? If your kid's only strategy is, hey, dad, remind me to do my homework at five o'clock. Right. And that's the one they're always going to use. I've been in houses with my clients where the kid does something like that. And then the parent immediately sets a reminder in Alexa or sets an alarm on their phone or on a clock or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why don't, how come your kid didn't do that? Like, why did they have you set a reminder in Alexa when they could do that? And then we get to the conversation around they need strategies for reminders that are not you. I see this a lot in my office, these sort of dynamics of this sort of like dependent but oppositional relationship where the kid really does need others legitimately from a skill perspective, does need help with reminders, getting organized, prioritizing, getting things done, managing time, whatever but also has this sort of dependent expectation of it's your job, even though I'm a sophomore in high school, it's your job to remind me, it's your job to make me do it. It's your, you know what I mean? Where it's sort of like, they're not taking enough responsibility. And yet they don't want to be told what to do and they don't take any responsibility themselves. So it's irresponsible parenting to not get on their case. You know, it's this awful dynamic that everybody hates and yet also in a pathological way kind of works for each of them as well. So I think that becomes part of the conversation as well. Of Like, is this really our best option? Like, is what we're doing working? Does it work for you? Because I don't think it's really working for me. What are we doing here? I don't want to have, you know, I can't let you fail out. Like, that's not an option for me. But I hate chasing you and making you do stuff because that really sucks also. So what are we doing? So again, it's that idea of giving away the dilemma or at least opening up a conversation about the dilemma and figuring out some other way of handling that. You know, there's lots of ways that conversation can go, but, but the important thing is that they both are a part of it and they both sort of agree on what the end point is. Even though there's a lot we could dig into on that, um, just being mindful of time, Mm-hmm. Do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with the audience? I think I'm going to come back to a line that I use a lot, which is that a good relationship is one that pushes you to become a better person. And whether it's your romantic partner, whether it's your kids, 
you know, these relationships can absolutely bring out the worst in all of us, but hopefully they also bring out the best. And when we get stuck, it just means we need to kind of dig a little bit deeper and work a little bit harder to communicate honestly, to listen respectfully, to work together, to not tolerate bad behavior on our part, but also to not tolerate bad behavior on our partner or kid's part either. And you know, to be able to have those better conversations and sometimes to let people kind of face their consequences, you know, and that needs to, and sometimes we didn't quite touch on this, but sometimes that needs to be part of the conversation is we need to come to some sort of agreement that I don't think is going to work. We're going to try it. Lo and behold, it doesn't work. But now that's your problem, not my problem. Perhaps then we have a better conversation. So this is all a process. And as much as ADHD definitely can give some additional opportunities, shall we say, to have these kinds of conversations, even when nobody has ADHD, you still have to have these conversations. So like, take your ADHD or your kids or spouse's ADHD seriously, but also don't make it the scapegoat for all of your problems because you're not that great and ADHD is not that powerful. You know, there's always more than ADHD going on there. It just might be that the ADHD is that much more of a reason for everybody to work on bringing their best to it. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com, and visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.